All right, let's turn to Romans 1 and Romans what? 15, very good, good students here. I can't believe you forgot this, all of you, you forgot this. The ninth annual Bolathon, April 7th, yes. You didn't know about that? Where have you been? This is, <laughs> Pastor Brown, is that correct? April 7th, right up here. There, you can get these um, out at the information desk, and one to four. Sponsor, how do you pronounce it? Is it Gigi or Gigi? Huh? Gigi's gang, that's Pauletta. And uh, $15 per person. It includes three hours of bowling, and Pastor Brown will be showing off because he's got a ring that said he bowled 300 a couple of times. So you can, if you're, yeah, 300, did. In a three-game match. <laughs> now ask him about it. He'll be humble, but he has to answer that question if you ask him. He has to answer it honestly. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 is where we'll start, but we're also going to go to Romans 15, 7. So, let's take a couple of moments. Father, we recognize that when we meet together, we're meeting also with groups throughout the country, including one we've heard from recently, Troop Texas. We have groups throughout the country, and we thank you, Father, that you have placed all of these fellow saints in our hearts. We ask that you will... Bless the going forth of your word tonight to the edification of many, to the strengthening in grace of many, to the expansion of the gospel of the universally saving Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. Tonight I would simply call the message, So Receive One Another. It's really at the heart of the practical matter. So receive one another. Now, I can only for the moment present a very bare sketch of the following two passages because they are among the most dense, and I mean by dense, I mean loaded passages of Scripture, bar none. I mean, they are, so I can only present a bare sketch tonight of the following two passages from the left and the right flank of Romans. My goal is to teach Romans the epistle from an angle that you may not have considered it before, from a left flank, Romans 1 through 4, a right flank, Romans 12 through 16, pressing in toward a center, a double center, Romans 5 through 8 and 9 through 11. So it's necessary that we stay rather lean on our exegesis. These two passages can fan out forever. I mean, 
effectively and tremendously. But I'm going to stay lean on our exegesis here to illustrate the interpretive power of the pincer strategy that we're employing in Romans, coming at it from both flanks. Now, it happens providentially that when I was away in Florida, I read this once on January 16th, which is my baby sister Teresa's birthday. I won't tell you how old she just became, but all of the siblings are in one decade now. Yeah, I know, 40s, but that's just... But I also reread it on January 24th. I always usually note the dates I'm reading these things. And on both the 16th and the 24th, when I was away from you in Florida, I read a, an essay by Leander E. Keck. It's another one of the stars of exegesis in Romans, Leander E. Keck. I get a kick out of Keck. He's quite the scholar. But he gives a very he gave a very helpful insight on the structure and the horizon of Romans the Epistle. And it it's it's actually this passage that inspired me to stay with the pincer strategy in terms of Romans. He says this, and I want to quote this fairly brief paragraph. He said, we expect this paragraph, speaking of Romans 15, 7 through 13, which I want to get through tonight, at least in a bare exegesis, a very lean one. We expect this paragraph to be especially important because it concludes the letter's theological, ethical core. He has theological slash ethical core. Just as 1, 16 to 17 opens the argument and paranasis, and I should define that word paranasis because it's a very important word. Paranasis is is essentially where the word of God takes on an ethical bent. It takes on an encouraging and exhortational bent, but also an ethical praxis, we'd call it praxis or practical bent which we know is also aided by the Holy Spirit. And so, paranasis, and so I just want you to know that word. So he says, just as 116 to 17 opens the argument and paranasis, so also 15, 7 to 13 closes it. This core, he says, is framed by a discussion of Paul's relation to the readers. And he cites 1, 8 to 15. This is very helpful to the structure of Romans. 1, 8 to 15, which we just went through. And 15, 14 to 33, which we just went through last week. There are other concluding paragraphs, he says. And he puts concluding in quotes because there's lots of times when you think he's finished in Romans and he's not. And he's not really finished until 1627's Amen which I'll show you. So he said there are other concluding paragraphs within this core, and he emphasizes that they are Romans 8, 31 to 39. Now, interestingly, if you go with all the verses of Romans, I'll just stop here for a second. 
Jennifer Messick recently came up to me, and I was right in the middle of thinking at that for a few days, is this going to work until we get to the heart and center of Romans? And she said she counted the verses, and there are 433 verses in Romans, and so the one that has 216 on either side is the dead center, and it's Romans 8.31. And I told her I can't believe, I, I call her, Remember, Tom, plen gen, plen gen, the plenary genitive. But it was, it, it, this is how we collaborate as a ministry, really. The, sometimes something someone says to me just clicks and makes the whole thing make sense. And it gave me the encouragement to say, wow, there is a dead center. And if God is for us, God is for us, God is for us is the heart of the heart of the X-ring. That paragraph, 831 to 39. So every one of these just Slap me upside the head like Jethro Gibbs on NCIS. Slap me upside the no, back of the head, really. Let me start it all over again. We expect this paragraph to be especially important because it concludes the letter's theological ethical core. Just as one sixteen to seventeen, where we're going tonight, opens the argument and paranasis, so also fifteen seventeen seven to thirteen closes it. This core is framed by a discussion of Paul's relation to the readers one eight to fifteen. 1514 to 33. There are other concluding paragraphs within this core, mentioning 831 to 39 and 1133 to 36, being notable examples. Indeed, he says 151 through 6, where we're going pretty soon, is another, as we shall see. But notice what he said, and this is what really hit me. However, Whereas their horizon, their horizon, these other concluding, so-called concluding paragraphs, whereas their horizon is the subject matter that precedes immediately, the horizon of 15, 7 through 13 is nothing short of the entire argument. So we have here, very climactic verse. So it was while reading this very paragraph on Keck's essay in Florida that I was persuaded that Romans could be studied under a pincer strategy, that is, the strategy of attacking the center from two flanks, which is a famous strategy to the Romans because in 216 B.C. they were defeated by Hannibal's troops at a place called Cannae or Cannae, and it was through a pincer strategy, totally demolished the Roman legion there, and it was really the beginning of the end, and the end was 476 when the Western Roman Empire fell and crumbled complete, almost completely. So the pincer strategy is important from many different angles. It's a matter then of what I consider to be providential grace that our passage, both our passages in this lesson happen to be Romans 1, 16 to 17 on the left flank and Romans 15, 7 to 13 on the right flank. It's also a matter of providential genius that this very paragraph in Keck's essay, which is in a book called Studies on Paul and John, brings up the subject of horizons in the same paragraph. Horizons is the ninth theological functional specialty that Robert Duran added to what I call not the hateful eight, but the fateful eight theological functional specialties. 
of, of Bernard Lonergan. Just see if you're thinking with me. Fateful Eight, get it? You probably didn't see the Hateful Eight. I don't recommend it. Very weird, violent movie. So then, I'm employing all nine of these specialties in the study of Romans, either consciously or unconsciously, with a special emphasis on horizons. So Romans 1.16, and again, we're staying pretty lean. I'm going with a kind of a sketch here instead of an in-depth thing, which I hope to do in the future. He says this in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation. Soteria. Question is, is Romans soteriocentric? Is it centered in a soteria, a salvific act of God? And is it universally soteriocentric? That's two questions. And here we have the beginning of the answer. The gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone. Now, we should stop right there because the believing here is not, and this is very important, believing is not the condition for salvation. It is the condition for the correspondence of our lives to our reconciliation, which is already wrought by God in Christ. But it's not the condition for justification. And that's the big difference of interpretation in Romans now as opposed to the so-called reformational or Lutheran, so-called Lutheran view. Luther basically taught sola fide, which is only by faith, and Calvin taught sola gratia, only by grace. And I think both of them missed the universality of the horizon of Romans. And so we start again with 116. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also for the Greek. Or to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's a phrase I want to emphasize more tonight. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Or for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For everyone who believes, as we mentioned before, and I think I have to keep mentioning this, does not exclude those who do not believe, that is, consciously believe. It, as we see later in Romans 11.32, which occasions that great doxology in 33 to 36, God has shut up all in unbelief that he may have mercy upon all. That's the key. That's the kicker. Verse 17 and this, I put this because it, it's the inference here. He said, I say, not ashamed, Paul says, because by it, the righteousness of God, which we're going to see is the saving act of God in Christ, continued in the Christ spirit or the spirit of Jesus Christ, is apocalypsed. Like others, we've taken that noun apocalypse for a shocking disclosure and turned it into a verb because it's better than merely revealed, unveiled, disclosed. We say apocalypse because it brings out the shocking nature of this revelation, the shocking nature of this disclosure. So because by it, that's the gospel, the righteousness of God, the saving act of God in Christ and in the Christ spirit 
is apocalypsed from faithfulness to faithfulness. And we're going to look at that in depth sometime down the future. Tonight, just a sketch. Just as it is written. Please note that. Just as it is written. The whole theme of Romans is that the mystery that's been kept silent from time past, ages immemorial, and time immemorial, has now, by the command of God, been manifested in the writings of the prophets. That's not New Testament prophets. That's the Old Testament prophets. The mystery of the universal salvation in Christ was always in the Old Testament. Only with Christ's advent does it pop before our eyes. For example, Habakkuk 2.4, which is one of the most fundamental verses for Romans, which he quotes here. Just as it is written, the righteous one, and I read that as being Jesus, and I'll explain why, and you'll see by the pincer strategy. I take that, in other words, as a messianic reading, as a Christological reading. I take that as being the righteous one, being Jesus, will live. That's what Habakkuk prophesied. God prophesied through Habakkuk in 2.4. The righteous one, Jesus, will live from, out from, or because of faithfulness. We have a picture here of the Messiah living in resurrection because of his faithfulness, his fidelity to God, his obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion. This righteous one, Jesus Christ, will live in resurrection out from a source of his faithfulness to the extent of death by crucifixion, which is the way that rectifying life comes to all mankind, as Romans 5.18 to 19 says. But let's quickly go to the other flank. That's the left flank. It's pressing toward the center. Here comes the right flank, pressing toward the center from the right. Romans 15.7 for this reason, receive one another. Just as the Messiah Christ has received you for the glory, or we could say doxa, the honor of God. All through Romans, Paul's addressing group biases where little groups and cells of Christians had rivalry for superior honor. And so they did not receive one another, welcome one another into their circle, as it were, their circle of acquaintance. And so Paul goes through this entire argument and sums it up by saying, so receive one another. Just as the Messiah, Jesus Christ, has received you for the glory, not of you, not of your group, not of the Jews, not of the Gentiles, not of Jewish saints, or Gentile saints, but the honor of God. Receive is the present middle imperative form of the verb paralambano. It's a present middle imperative. That means it's a command. It's a gracious command, but it's a command. Paralambano is the word. And again, we're staying lean. I'm not going to every word, but that's important. Receive one another. Gingrich says that it means to accept into one's circle of acquaintances. It is an, it's an apostolic imperative of grace, 
That's my take on it. An apostolic imperative of grace issued to all the groups of saints in Rome. The command is based on the breaking down of the walls of separation built by group biases rooted ultimately in one's cultural origins and, and ultimately in one's heritage. In this case, whether Gentile or Jew became the big issue. This command is climactic in Romans as it sums up Paul's paranetic, remember the word paranesis, paranetic or his practical ethical purpose in Romans. This command is in accord with the radical demolition of the partition wall between Jews and Gentiles which we have spoken about in Ephesians 2, 14 and 15. It was a wall that was demolished by the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which he made of the two, that is the Jews and the Gentiles, he made out of the two one new humanity. A new humanity to live in newness of life. Romans 6, 4, Romans 7, Six, they live in newness of life. It is a life that we explained a little bit on Sunday, extra se, as the Latin would say, outside of yourself, extra se, outside of you, in Christ, in Christo, using Latin now, extra se, in Christo. The old life is a life that is curved in upon oneself. And that's the essence of what sin does. Sin, capital S-I-N, as a power, has the effect of curving the self in on itself. And that's the hell, that's the eternal damnation, that's the eternal punishment, that's the Gehenna, that's the metaphorical meaning of all these things. It's the curvature in on oneself. It seems like it goes on forever. It seems like there's no relief, and you cry out, Who shall deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord that he did save us from that. That's this is where we're going to get to. That's why I stand by my declaration. It wasn't just made in the emotion or the frenzy, the prophetic frenzy of the moment. In Sunday, that Sunday morning was the most important message that I've brought in my Nearly 40 years of preaching, really 40 plus some because I started in Vermont. The most important. And right at the heart of Romans is this extra say in Christo, this life, this newness of life. And so it's a new humanity because of the demolition of a barrier wall. It's a new humanity to live in newness of life which God made possible by raising Jesus from the dead. What is essential is the new creation, not circumcision or uncircumcision, which speaks of the cultural heritage of Jews versus Gentiles. Messiah made peace by the blood of his cross, so receive one another. That's, that's Romans on the level of our own times. That's Romans at lot on the level of our time. 
For truly, our fellowship is with the Father and the Son, as our communion is with the Spirit. 1 John 1, 3, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. So receive one another. As Christ has received you into the social circle of the triune God, Jesus Christ received you. He received me into his social circle, his circle of acquaintance with the Father and the Spirit. So receive one another as Christ received you to the glory of God or for the honor of God. For truly our fellowship is with the Father and the Son as our communion is with the Spirit. This mutual acceptance then is a praxis that results in the honor of God. It's the end of seeking superior honor among ourselves. God receives the honor in our mutual acceptance of one another as the very manifestation of Christ's acceptance of us. I'll say that again. It is God receives the honor in our mutual acceptance of one another as the very manifestation of Christ's acceptance of us. Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 5, 6. God reconciled us to himself in Christ while we were still enemies. Romans 5, 9, and 10. 2 Corinthians 5, 19. God rectifies the ungodly. Romans 4, 5. Why can't we accept one another? Why rebuild a wall that God flattened by the cross? To do so is to become a true transgressor. Paul makes that argument in Galatians 2:17 and 18. For if I rebuild what God has torn down, that makes me a real transgressor. It's to frustrate the grace of God and to give the lie to God's show of mercy to all. That is, to live in a contradiction of that, to live as if God does not show mercy to all. So think of it. It's enough to think of for the rest of our life on this earth. Christ has received you. Someone will say, I received Christ. I would say that's fine. But more significant, Christ has received you. So receive one another. That's kind of a conclusive statement Paul's making here, Romans 15, 7. So receive one another. The tenement churches and the slums of Rome pitted against the house churches in the suburbs and some of the suburbs against the other suburb house churches because there's Jewish Christians called weaklings by the so-called strong who named themselves that. 
There's no receiving of one another. There's fragmentation. There's polarization. Looks like the church today. I say church advisedly. Because Christendom isn't the church. The church is the effect of God's action, not of man's decision to have a creed. The church is the flesh and blood effect of God's action in Christ and God's continued action in the spirit of Jesus Christ. It isn't the place in the world where people speak about Jesus. Christendom is nothing but the world, the cosmos, the evil age, with an empty Christian profession attached to it. It has no answers for the ills of our day. So then, do not reject one another, is what Paul's teaching, based on group or personal biases to preserve your own sense of superior honor. Receive one another to the honor of God who delights in doing mercy as Roman as Romans teaches as a fanning out of Jeremiah 9:24 The honor of God who delights in doing mercy judgment and righteousness in all the earth that's the horizon of God's mercy This is what Paul has led up to all along. Romans 15, 7 and following. This is what Paul has led up to all along. In keeping with the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the apocalypse of the mystery of universal salvation, the herald, Paul, of the divine king, has made a powerful bid for peace among the house and tenement churches or cells of saints in Rome. We won't call them churches. They're cells of saints in Rome. Now, looking back to Romans 1, 16 to 17, it'd be great if we had both of these on. If I was a PowerPoint guy, I'd have all those charts and stuff. I just can't do that. Can't go there. That's up to you, the next generation. Besides, if I did that, Tony would call me a snowflake like he called me last time I did a cancellation of church. So, looking back to Romans 1, 16 to 17, the inspired apostle, now we have to remember he's inspired. God is breathing out what he's writing. He juxtaposes the Jew and the Greek as equal beneficiaries of the salvation of God in Christ. Equal beneficiaries. Paul uses a catena. That's another word that's really good. It's a rhetorical device. When you're making an argument, you have a catena of proofs, quotes, and it's like a cascade. And Paul uses it. It's called kai palin, and again. And you see that kind of rhetorical device in Hebrews. And it says here in the scriptures, and again it says, and again it says, and still again it says, it's it's a hammer. It's hammer time. Can't touch this. So, (laughs) 
Here it is. Paul uses a catena, a cascade, a waterfall of citations of Scripture to show this beneficiary, that both are beneficiaries equally of the salvation of God in Christ and in the Christ spirit. By arranging these scriptures in such a way, they are taken from Torah, the law, they are taken from the prophets, the Nevi'im, they are taken from the Ketubim, the writings, like Second Samuel, and they're taken from the Psalms. All Paul just creatively gathers them all up to give proof of the soteriological, Christological universality of the benefits of salvation to all. And so again, he shows that the mystery which had been kept silent for times past, immemorial, is now by the command of the eternal God manifested. In other words, we would say it's popping from the writings of the prophets. It didn't pop. That mystery didn't pop until Jesus Christ was incarnate. The New Testament scriptures are the record of the Old Testament mystery revealed. The apocalypse of the mystery of a universal salvation in a Messiah named Yeshua. For he will save his people from their sins. His people being everyone. See, this is the next step. This is the next step. When a fantastic ambassador of Christ named Billy Graham goes home to be the Lord at 99, it is the end of an era. It is the time when the gospel that he preached to hundreds of millions, literally, becomes the gospel of the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ preached to hundreds of millions or billions. This is what God intends. So then, look what he does here in Romans 15, 8. For I say that Christ became a minister of the circumcision. Go back to Romans 1, 17, the Jew first. Christ became a minister to the circumcision, the Jew first. But why? Just for the Jew? Hardly. So I put in after circumcision in brackets, the Jew, which goes back to Romans 1, 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first. But just think, just in case you think as a Jew that you're only the ones included, also the Gentiles, the Greek. The Greek is the Gentile. Circumcision, the Jew. Uncircumcision, the Greek. The Greek means all non-Jews. The Greeks thought they were the wise and the barbarians, like the people in Spain that Paul was going to go preach to, why, they're the barbarians, they're the unwise. So there was all this group stuff going on rooted in cultural biases. So get Ancestry.com, spit in a tube so you can find out where you're from, so you can have all the more bias against other people. No, I don't, I'm not against that, but I've found my genetics in Jesus Christ. So it's interesting. When I look at everything else outside of the Word of God, the best I can get is mildly interested. 
Olympics, yeah, nice. Oh, snowboarding, half pipe. Eh, mildly interesting. Movies, mildly interesting. Christian movies, not even mildly interesting usually, except with a couple of exceptions, like I'm anticipating, who would have ever thought, part two of The Passion of the Christ, The Resurrection. That movie's coming out. And the star, James Caviezel, predicts that it'll be the biggest movie ever in history. Now, it would be nice if the gospel came clear through it. It'd be maybe a nice way for a couple hundred million people to hear it. I say, Paul said, that Christ became a minister of the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God. In other words, he's done it to show the veracity of God who made the promises. All the promises of God are yes and amen in him. So he came, he became incarnate on behalf of the truth of God, the veracity of God who promised the patriarch something. What he promised was an unconditional promise that in Abraham's seed, all the nations, Gentiles, would be blessed with the benefit of salvation is what he means. So I say that Christ became a minister of the circumcision, that is the Jew, going back to Romans 1, 16 and 17. On behalf of the truth of God, Romans 3, 3 and 4 speaks of the truth of God, or if God is true, and he is, then if every man in the world says something other than him, then they're all liars. Let God be true. What if some became unfaithful? What if some did not believe? Does that nullify God's faithfulness to save them? Of course not. Let God be true. And every preacher, a liar, who says that God doesn't save everybody. Romans 3, 3, and 4. See, I'm going back to that. But he says, I say that Christ became a minister of the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God for the confirmation of, we would say, to make good on. The promise made to the patriarchs. Who are the patriarchs? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. What are the promises? One promise repeated many times. We went there in Galatians 3. The promise that in your seed, Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, on down through Mary, the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ, through in your seed, Paul said that means Christ, all the nations will be blessed. An unconditional promise with a universal horizon. Jesus Christ came as a minister to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to make good on the promises made to the patriarchs. And look at verse 9. And so that the Gentiles, the Greek, back to Romans 1, 16 and 17, will glorify God for his mercy. Christ became a minister to the circumcision. So the Jew says, yeah, that's right. We're Jewish Christians, and we still adhere to some of the things about Torah. We believed in Messiah, and we're special. And you're not. But Christ, because Christ became a minister to the circumcision. And Paul said, yes, so that the Gentiles will glorify God for his mercy. What a, this is the most, you, you people say that's genius, which is wrong. That's, if you're going to say something is Ingenious, say ingenious. That's ingenious. Genius is a noun, not an adjective. That's genius. 
No, that's ingenious. What's ingenious is the Holy Spirit here who imparted to Paul a gift of wisdom, which is his genius. And the way he puts these verses together is ingenious because it's the genius of the Holy Spirit. And so he says, and so that the Gentiles, that's the Greek, will glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, kathos gegraptai, he says. And he gets emphatic here. As it is written, kathos gegraptai. He uses it here, but he also used it in Romans 1.17. As it is written, kathos, just as, kathos, just exactly as it stands written. Kathy, kathos gegraptai. That woke Kathy up. Kathos gegraptai, Romans 1.17. But also that word, kathos gegraptai, is a rhetorical device that Paul uses throughout Romans, even as it stands written, even as it stands written. In the Old Testament, that means in the prophets. He uses it in Romans 2, 24, 3, 4, 3, 10, 417, 813, 913, 913, 
He becomes this minister on behalf of the veracity of God to make good the promises that were made by God to the patriarchs of Israel. And again, those promises are, in effect, one promise repeated again and again to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Namely, that in Abraham's seed or descendant, Christ, all the nations will be blessed. You can compare this to Galatians 3.16. Then, as if to confirm this, Paul quotes a verse which I think has to be considered messianic, meaning Christological, Christ doing the speaking. That is, the I in the verse here quoted means I, Christ Jesus. So as in Romans 1.16, so also, that's the left flank, so also at the right flank, 15.9b, to the Jew. First he adds the Greek, that is the Gentiles. And so that the Gentiles, he said, that corresponds to the Greek in 116, will glorify God for his mercy. Mercy that he shows to lots of people, 1132. Or is it all? I can't remember. Yes, I can. As it is written, therefore I, Christ, will acknowledge or praise, as in Romans 1411, every tongue will praise him. I will acknowledge you, God, among the Gentiles and sing psalms to your name. Jesus Christ is the I here. And I will praise you, Father, among the Gentiles, is what he's saying. Christ Jesus sings praises to God for his universally salvific mercy. Why can't you join in on the chorus, church? Why can't you join in the chorus of Jesus Christ praising his Father for universally salvific mercy? Preachers, evangelists, popes, cardinals, monsignors, bishops, dear old Dr. So-and-sos, why can't you join in and sing in harmony with your Savior who sings psalms to the Father and praises him for his universally salvific mercy? Someone's got to go on a tour with this message. Carry on. Take the baton from Dr. Graham, who took it so far. This is apocalypsed to us by a Christological reading. If you read it Christologically, Christocentrically, in Psalm 1849, as well as 2 Samuel 2250, This Christ, and this is extremely important. See, this Christological reading matches the Christological or Messianic reading all the way back to 117. The righteous one will live out from faithfulness. The righteous one is Jesus Christ, according to 1 Peter 3.18, according to Acts 22.14 and following, according to... 1 John 2, 1, according to Deutero-Isaiah, it's Jesus Christ himself. So if you want to say we're saved by faithfulness, 
We're saved by allegiance. We are saved by the allegiance of Jesus Christ. We participate in his fidelity when God awakens faith in us. To us who believe, the gospel is the power of salvation. To the rest who are saved but don't know it, they don't realize that the gospel is the power of salvation. That's what believing does. Believing isn't the condition for you to be saved. In one sense, God has already saved all mankind. Have you not read the scripture which says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself? Have you not read even as it is written? Kathos gegrapta. Have you not read that? Faith is not the condition to receive salvation. It is the condition to correspond to that condition, to realize the power of the gospel. But even then, the believing is awakened in us and elicited in us by the Holy Spirit. So the church exists because of an act of God in Christ, followed up by a continuous ongoing action of God in the Christ spirit, called the spirit of Jesus Christ. And that's the church. So you don't know where the church is. It's not under a steeple. It's not in a cathedral. It's not at New Kensington. It's not at any particular place. It's where God is acting in Christ and in the spirit on people, where God is in people willing and doing. So then, I have to finish this. Look. So the Christological reading here in Romans 15.9, matches the Christological reading or Messianic reading of 117, where we read the righteous one to be Christ who lives in resurrection because of his own faithfulness to the extent of death on the cross. This, incidentally, it just dawned on me. This that I'm teaching you is what some people are calling the dung that I'm teaching down here. What's that crap he's teaching, they say. And that's the word that they define this teaching. Where are they in this? They're just like me, ungodly, who need to be justified. It's ringing out now. People are saying it now in places tonight, talking over a beer or two. Listen carefully. This is what it really is. The cascade of scriptures continues with the emphatic phrase, reminiscent. That's the polite terms I used, incidentally, tonight. The the emphatic phrase, reminiscent of a rhetorical device used in Hebrews, and again, Romans 15.10, and again, the scripture says, rejoice you Gentiles with his people. That's from Deuteronomy 32.43, Moses speaking, in Torah, and again, verse 11, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, panta ta ethne, all, without exception, the Gentiles, panta ta ethne, and let all the people groups, all the people groups, pantes hoi laoi, Praise him. Psalm 117.1. The Psalms. The prophets. The writings. The Torah. Cascading. 
God is gracious and kind and merciful, as I hope I am, toward those who are detracting from this message because they simply have not heard it. They haven't heard it. They don't listen to it. They've made a decision, and they've cloistered themselves in their little group, and they have cut themselves off from the experience of salvation in time. But they feel very proud that they've avoided this message. (laughs) Ironic. So I would ask myself, is this the Israel of God he's talking about? Gentiles praising God with his people, Israel. Is is this the Israel of God that we came up with by the grace of God years and years ago that kicked off a lot of other things that triggered a chain reaction of insights? Could this be the Israel of God? I'll let you answer that. The Gentiles rejoicing with God's people, Israel, singing together and in harmony with the Messiah, who is both Israel's Messiah and the Savior of the world. The Samaritans got that right. Could this not be the Messiah, which is Israel's Messiah, who is also the Savior of the world in John 4.42? I think so. The hated Samaritans got it right. Now, as if to verify and confirm with finality that indeed the righteous one in Romans 1.17, confer with Habakkuk 2.4, is Jesus Christ, Paul hammers this verse home on the right flank of Romans the epistle again, and again in verse 12. Did you hear it? And again, he says, Isaiah says this time, the root of Jesse, that's the heir to David's throne. Jesse was David's father. The descendant he's talking about here is not David, but the son of David, the descendant of David, Katasarka, according to the flesh, whom God raised from the dead. And by doing so, declared with power him to be the son of God. In Romans 1, 4. That goes back then to Romans 1, 3, 4. And, and ahead to 2 Timothy 2.8, remember, Timothy, Jesus Christ of the seed of David raised from the dead according to my gospel. Listen to it again. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse, the heir to David's throne, that's Jesus Christ, will come. The one who rises. The word is a word that means resurrection. The one who rises. The one, the righteous one in Romans who lives by being resurrected as an answer to his fidelity to God by which every human being is justified. That's the scandal of the cross And those who say that they were believers all along are not part of the church of God. They are not part of what God is doing in Christ and in the spirit today. If they criticize and malign this message. So, you know what you do? A lot of people don't want to even put this in Romans. Mark them and avoid them who speak of a different doctrine. They don't serve our Lord Jesus Christ. They serve their own belly, which needs to be filled with something that will bring honor to themselves. I wait for a while before I slam these things down, but I have to slam them down because if I don't, 
Woe to the shepherd whose sword does not draw blood. Said Jeremiah in chapter 48. And that's metaphorical. That's metaphorical. So, in closing, again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse, Jesus Christ, will come. The one who rises, that's the word for resurrection. He raises from the dead to rule the nations. He rises from the dead to rule the nations. That's Gentiles. In him, the Gentiles will hope. What Gentiles? All Gentiles. In Ephesians 1.12, Paul wrote to the Gentile church there, and he says, you are among the first to hope in Christ. The first to hope in Christ. Which anticipates the all will hope in Christ. With that established, Paul can now express his gracious wish for all the saints in Rome, who share not two but one hope, not two hopes, like the dispensationalists teach. One hope for Israel, one hope for the church. One hope. There's one hope, one spirit, one baptism by which we are baptized into Christ by the spirit, one father, one Lord, one faith, and it's the faith that God awakens or it's just your decision to believe a creed, which isn't salvation. And that doesn't constitute the church. The church isn't a group of people that subscribe to a creed. The reason I haven't written a creed for our website is that I probably never can write a creed because we're always on the mood of a move in describing and discovering more and more fantastic stuff about God. And who he is and what the scriptures say. Oh, I'll nail it down, put a few things down just so that we can be regarded as a church. But here he says in Romans 15, with that established, Paul expresses his gracious wish for all the saints in Rome, which is my wish for you. And that is, may the God, the source of hope, completely fill you up with joy and peace in believing. The believing doesn't bring you justification. The believing brings you fullness of joy and peace. Now may God, the source of hope, completely fill you up with joy and peace in believing. Goes back to what? Romans 1.16. To all who believe. To, it's not that all who believe will be saved and all who don't believe will not be saved. That's not what Paul is talking about. He's talking about to those who do believe, the gospel is perceived by them as what it is. The power of God for salvation. Faith doesn't save you. God saves you. Imagine Jesus at the final judgment. He says, I would have saved you, but you didn't pray and ask me to. I saw you drowning in the abyss of your own curvature in upon yourself and incapable of doing anything. But because you didn't say the right sinner's prayer to hell with you. Yeah, I can see that. That's, that's the Jesus that is another Jesus 
that people worship when they call this message excrement. I'd say all that big talk is doodly squat, which is another word for, you know, never mind. So that you may overflow with hope. What does that mean? Well, among other things, it means that you can give a reason for the hope that's in you when other people ask you for it. That's hope overflowing to them. In 1 Peter 3.15. Sanctify the Lord Jesus Christ in your hearts that set apart him with total priority. And be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies in you. So that you may overflow with hope. This is the true wealth to boast in, incidentally. That's a word, overflow. Parisio means to have such a wealth that it overflows. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, nor the strong man boast in his strength, nor the strong man or woman, or the wealthy man or woman boast in their wealth. Here's the wealth you should boast in, the hope. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. Notice it again. Now may the God, the source of hope, completely fill you up with joy and peace in believing so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not by positive thinking. Not by optimism. By the power of the Holy Spirit. If it isn't an action of God, it isn't nothing. The effect of the juxtaposition of these two passages, and all I've done here is a very bare sketch. The effect of the juxtaposition of these two passages from the two flanks of Romans the epistle is to show that the entire epistle exposes God's universal soteriological plan or saving plan, which is brought to bear on the saints in Rome to produce a practical, God-glorifying unity among them, which will in turn be a power for the expansion of the saving power of God through the proclamation of the gospel, where it has not been heard before, in that case, Spain. Romans is unquestionably soteriocentric. At the heart of it is the saving God, the God who saves. Because it's theocentric, centered in God. Because it's Christocentric, centered in Christ. Because it's pneumatocentric, because it's centered in the spirit. It's not ecclesiocentric. That's where a lot of theologians have gone. Ecclesiocentric, meaning centered in the church. It's not church-centered. It's soteriocentered in God. And listen to this final word I'll say. The church exists because of the Christ event and because of the ongoing action of the Spirit of Christ in the world not because people decide to believe. 
The church does not exist because people decide to believe. The church exists because of the Christ event and because of the ongoing action of the Spirit of Christ in the world. Thank you, Father, that you've allowed your word to speak tonight. And we are grateful, Father, that you have made clear your message, but make it more clear. Make it more clear. Make it as clear as the air in heaven is clear, as the view in heaven is bright and clear. Help us to continue to read Romans with the light on, because in your light we see light, and it's only in the light that you give that we ever get to know you. 